Hello and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Michelle Mainville. Michelle's parents are survivors of the residential school system, so she's an intergenerational survivor herself. She's also a survivor of the 60 Scoop, a government policy to remove Indigenous children from their families and place them in homes of non-Indigenous families some as far away as Australia and Europe. She was trafficked as a child from the age of 12 years old until she managed to leave when she was 21. She was also an addict during that period until she began to turn her life around and begin her healing process. Her daughter was tragically murdered in Toronto by her traffickers. Michelle currently works as a youth addictions counselor in Winnipeg, Manitoba, working with girls who are and have been sexually exploited. Hello and welcome, Michelle. How are you today? I'm good. Bonjour, bonjour. Good to hear you. Good to see you. Maybe you can just start by uh, telling us a little bit about your family background. Like, I know you're from somewhere on Manitoulin Island. Maybe you can just talk about your home reserve and a little bit about your family background. Yeah, um, both my parents are from residential school and um, they went to St. Mary's Residential and St. Anne's. My father is from Cochiching by Fort Francis, Ontario. And my mother is from Anangaming by Nestor Falls. That's in between uh, Fort Francis and Kenora. Let's start from the beginning, I guess. So you could say that my father was um, very abusive um, and my mother had left him when I was very young, um, say about before I was one years old. During that time when my mom had us, she couldn't handle all of us because there was six of us. So we were eventually taken away, put in foster homes, non-Aboriginal foster homes. Until I was about the age of five. Both my parents are Ojibwe. Um, yeah. You mentioned that your parents both attended residential school. Yes. How has this affected your life? It affected me quite a bit. My parents didn't know how to parent. I felt that that was taken away from them when they were taken away from their parents. I didn't see a lot, but um, there was a lot of abuse um, in the home. See, like um, you have to understand I was just a baby at the time. My sister tells me a lot more stories of like how we had to grow up with uh, both parents. Uh, my mom is a fluent speaker. She never taught us because she always thought that we would never need our language. She never taught us our culture. So I grew up not knowing like my language or my culture. And I thought that, you know, um, abuse was the norm. Yeah. You mentioned that you were a survivor of the 60 Scoop. Can you uh, talk a bit about this and what was it like? How old were you when you were scooped up? Um, I was about one, before I was one, until I was, until I was about five o'clock. Five o'clock, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> sorry. Until I was five years old. <laughs> I don't remember much of that part of my life because like I was just, a, you know, a baby still. We were placed in like a like a, a home. When I look back at my documents, I was a very quiet baby. Um, I wouldn't respond to people. My sister, like when I told her about my documents, she said, well, it was felt because you were traumatized. 
why you were very quiet and, you know, despondent to anybody. So, yeah. Where did you live? Like, uh... Uh, we lived in Kenora. Um, we were placed with my grandma for a little bit, but then we ended up in a, like a home there in Kenora. We were going to be adopted out down to the States, but I guess so the band stepped in and they stopped the adoption. Right. How old were you when you left the home? My mom got us back, I'd say, around when I was about, before I was five. She had remarried a non-native down in the States, got us back. Right. You state in your bio that you were trafficked as a child between the ages of 12 till, I guess, when you left at 21. Mm-hmm. How were you trafficked and how did you manage to leave the situation? Um, when you say traffic, what, what do you what do you mean? Um, I was sold. I sold uh, men. Um, uh, let me just get a little bit more into that. Um, when I was about uh, six, seven, um, I was sexually abused by my uh, stepfather's brothers. Um, I was being sexually abused, like growing up, like uh, tell I was about 10. And then that's when we moved to Winnipeg. That's where I started acting out. And my mom didn't understand why I was. It was from the um, trauma of being sexually abused uh, for so many years. But um, when I was at the age of 12, I had seen one of my friends. Um, We were in school and I was always running away. I was always running away, dating older guys, not knowing that I was being sexually exploited. But they would give me a place to stay, you know, booze, drugs, anything that I wanted. Just as long as, you know, I would um, do sexual favors. So I had met this uh, girl, my friend, and I, I was wondering why she was having like these really nice things. Like she had nice clothes, she had money. And she told me, well, come come meet my uh, boyfriend. And so um, I met her boyfriend. He let me stay. And then he said, well, do you want to make money? And I thought at this time, you know, like I might as well make money. Men were always like on me. Like, and I figured, you know, I might as well make money off this. So um, um, he would set up dates. I was called a baby prostitute. So like a lot of older men, they would, uh, they would buy me. At that time, I really didn't know that um, he was making thousands off of us. He would give me like 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that, that is a lot of money, you know, because you're only 12. Don't think, you know. I worked with him till I was about 14. And then I was finally able to get away. Um, by this time, I was um, put in uh, CFS in Winnipeg already because my mom couldn't handle me. So she put me in children's aid. So I told my worker what I was doing. And so she locked me up. So that's how I was able to get away from the pimp. When I got out, I got involved with the gangs, Aboriginal gangs here in uh, Winnipeg. I started kind of like working for them, bringing in the money, you know, if they needed drugs or anything like that. And then when I was about 17, I um, by this time I was already using hard drugs. And then I had um, met um, my drug dealer. And I ended up having a, a child from him. And I thought, okay, well, I'm finally out of the working and everything. But um, that wasn't the case. Um, 
we ended up breaking up and I ended up meeting another gang member. And he was like one of the head leaders of the largest Aboriginal gangs here in uh, Winnipeg. So um, I hooked up with him and I ended up working for him. Like he would sell me off. I ended up having another kid. By this time, I was already had heavily addicted to cocaine. Um, just anything I could get my hands on. Yeah, I was going to ask you what uh, you were an addict at, uh, at a young age. And I was going to ask you what kind of drugs were you were you taking? Cocaine and mother Cocaine. Um, back then, there was they had mixed a uh, tall one in Rutland. It was called the poor man's heroin. Um, I was into that. Um, I did cocaine. Um, I drank a lot. Um, yeah, it was just like to numb, so I didn't have to feel like um, these men. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to deal with them when I was sober. So like I would get really wasted and do my thing. Mm-hmm. How did you manage to uh, get out of the cycle that you were in? <laughs> Funniest thing, I was up in the Palm, Manitoba, and um, I just had my daughter. My partner at that time, he ended up going back to Stony Mountain, so I was able to uh, leave, and I went back down to Winnipeg. I had already given up my children. Um, I didn't want them to see me as an addict and, um, you know, um, a working, you know, um, so I gave them up to family. And by this time, I was really um, heavily into my addiction. And just one day, I was sitting in a hotel on Higgins Avenue, and I was going to commit suicide. Um, I I was just tired of my life. And so I had um, strung myself up. Lucky the bar broke. I ended up on my butt. (laughs) And um, I just like, I, I just thought, you know, I can't do this anymore. So I packed up whatever I had, which was just a little backpack, and I had hitchhiked out of town. My sister was living in Thunder Bay at that time, and she said, well, if you come here, you got to go to treatment. And I told her, yeah, that I was ready, and um, that was the end of that. And then you began your treatment and uh, started your healing from that point? Yeah, um, I was able to find out like what my culture was. Um, I went to an Aboriginal treatment center in Center Bay. I learned about my culture and learned healthy ways to um, to heal. Um, I did a lot of ceremonies, um, got my name, got my colors. I ended up having a nut house romance <laughs> while I was in uh, treatment, which you're not supposed to. <laughs> but I had met uh, the father of my two youngest kids uh, while I was in treatment. He wasn't a client. Um, he was just there for a AA roundup. Okay. I know this question is a little bit difficult or subject for you, and uh, you don't have to answer it. There have been many Indigenous women and girls who have gone missing and murdered, and your daughter was one of them. Do you want to speak on this? Uh, like I said, you don't have to if you don't feel comfortable doing it. I know it's a very difficult subject for you to talk about. Yeah, I don't mind. Um, you know, like when I talk about her, um, her story, um, it's healing for me. Um, although I do have a hard time um, talking about it, but her story needs to be told because um, she was human trafficked. Like when I said I had two younger kids, um, my daughter, um, when she was about 18, 19, I started noticing that she was getting a lot of 
messages from uh, these kind of men on her Facebook uh, telling her how beautiful she was and, um, you know, that they can give her a good life and, you know, just really grooming her. Like That's what grooming is, like telling her the things that they, she wanted, that she was um, wanting for, wanting to listen. And she eventually ended up going down to uh, Toronto. I would notice on her Facebook that she was hanging around with these certain kind of men and she was getting like her nails done, her hair done. And um, yeah, um, I started noticing that she was getting all these things and um, she was partying. Um, I just started noticing things like first when she went to the, when she went to Toronto, she stayed at a um, young woman's shelter and she had met a girl there and I think that's who had recruited her because I find those places like um, group homes or things like that. It's a, it's a big thing for to recruit girls because they're in a vulnerable state. So I seen her with a lot of pictures with this girl, with these men. And I asked her because she didn't have a job. She didn't have the uh, education. And I asked her like, um, how are you getting these things? Oh, my boyfriend's buying it for me and everything. I said, but like, baby, I said, they're going to make you pay for that. Oh, no, he won't. He loves me. And I said, baby, that's not love. They're going to make you pay for it one way or another. And um, I had told my daughter about my story, about me working and everything, so that she wouldn't go down the same path. And uh, I had told her, uh, she had told me, she goes, I'm never going to be like you. And uh, at this point, I knew that um, she was being trafficked. Prior to her uh, passing away, um, she was raped behind a young woman's shelter. And it was recorded because like, and they didn't do nothing. And she had called me and she told me, she goes, I want to come home now. And I told her, okay, baby. She, but she told me she couldn't. They wouldn't let her. And by this time, she was already too far, you know. Um, I guess so maybe into death or because I would uh, see pictures of her bruised up, scraped up. That was them beating her up. On the night of uh, April 25th, uh, 2013, um, she was in a cab on the 401. And something must have happened. Um, she didn't want to go where she was supposed to go. She had to go to a, a condo to meet up with a John. And um, she had jumped out of the 401, out of the cab. And um, police were called. And um, I believe that her traffickers were following her. They put her back in the cab and uh, they followed her to the condo where she had to uh, meet up with a John. When she got to the condo, um, a fight ensued. She didn't want to be there. She was crying. She was in distress. And police were called uh, the second time. And um, they came to the door. And there's a recording of her crying. She wanted to leave. She was screaming. I was asked if I wanted to listen to the recording. But I, I couldn't. And usually police, when it's domestic, they would... Um, go into the unit and extract that woman and ask them 
if they're okay. They didn't do that to my daughter. And then somehow they got to the balcony and there was still fighting. Police were called a third time. By this time, it was already too late. They had found her um, on the ground from the 24th floor. I believe the guy had thrown her off. Um, they didn't do no investigation. Like right away, they just, it was a suicide. Um, so the next morning, um, I get a knock on the door. I was uh, living in Manitoulin Island at that time. It was a police officer at my door and he, he asked me um, who I was, if I was Michelle Mainfall. I said, yes. And he goes, is there anybody else in the house? I said, yes, my husband. He goes, can you ask him to come out? And I'm thinking, okay, well, my husband did something wrong, you know. And then he goes, I have bad news. He goes, um, Cheyenne passed away last night. At first, I didn't want to believe it. Um, so I ended up asking him, I said, Dad, give me the division that found her. I want to make sure it's her. So he gave me the number. I called the division and I spoke to the police officer and uh, I wanted to make sure it was her. And I asked him, I said, I'm mother of Cheyenne Fox. I said, I want to know what happened and I want to make sure that it's her. He goes, well, her IGs were on her. It's her. And um, I asked him, I said, well, what happened? And he goes, really, really rude. He goes, well, did you know she was a prostitute? She was on drugs and she jumped. He said, you know, it is what it is. I couldn't fathom what he was saying to me. So I told him, you know, to F off and I hung up. <sighs> yeah. Um, so we had the task of bringing her home. We had her funeral in my apartment. And she lives behind... Um, her son. Uh, yeah. So, um, we were, uh, we were able to change her death certificate to undetermined, but that's as far as we got. There was a lot of promises to us that they would give the guy, um, a lie detector test. They didn't do it because they said he was too traumatized. We'll never get no justice for my daughter. I believe because she is Aboriginal. She is Native. That didn't define her, like what she was doing, who she was. You know, she was a very beautiful young girl. Um, a lot of uh, potential. She was loved by many. People loved her. She had a crazy sense of humor. I do a lot of presentations now um, on human trafficking and, and uh, sexual exploitation. And I do tell about my daughter's story because, you know, by telling her story, at least, you know, I wish that, that I hope that we reach one young girl or even one young, young man. But yeah, that's what happened to her. Yeah, there's been a lot of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in the last number of years. And we were just doing a bit of research on this and... Uh, the statistics for missing and murdered Indigenous women are is staggering. 
from 2001 to 2015, the homicide rate for Indigenous women in Canada was almost six times higher than other women. And in Nunavut, Yukon, Northwest Territories, Manitoba, and Alberta, and Saskatchewan, these numbers were even higher. 2014 report found that more than 1,000 Indigenous women had been murdered in the last 30 years in Canada. So that's about 100 per year. And Indigenous women, in another final report, Indigenous women and girls are 12 times more likely to be murdered or missing than other women in Canada, and 16 times more likely than Caucasian women. And these statistics just keep going on and on. And I know right now, and I really, you know, feel for you and what you had to go through, and especially how you describe how it was handled in a very disrespectful way to you and to her, to your daughter. You now find yourself working with Indigenous youth, and I understand you are currently working as a youth addictions worker. Do you want to talk a bit about that? I left uh, Winnipeg in 1991 because Winnipeg was like where all my trauma happened. I just recently moved back to Winnipeg in April. I heard about this job, so I applied, not really knowing what it really was, but it was um, a youth addictions worker and um, didn't really get the concept like whether or not, you know, who I'll be working with, but... I'm working with girls that are sexually exploited from the ages of 12 to 17. When I got healing, I went back to school. I've worked all over Ontario um, working with youth. Um, And my passion was to work with young girls that are sexually exploited or human trafficked. And when I got this job, I was like, wow, okay, you know, I can do something with this. We provide a program for them. Um, It's a 31-day program. They come into our unit and we give them tools that they need in order to like move forward and to get out of the sex trade industry. It's amazing like how many young girls are in Winnipeg that are sexually exploited. So we support them no matter what. We do harm reduction. If they make some wrong choices, you know, we support them no matter what. We try to make them like feel at home that, you know, that they're loved and try to let them be kids again. You know, um, back in my day, we never had any of these kind of programs. Um, I wish I did. It's a good program. It's a pilot project. It's just getting off the ground. You know, we've had um, a couple girls, but yeah, you know, it's, it's good just getting off the ground. So I think it's a really good program. Okay. Yeah. It's so appropriate for for you, I think. Uh, I worked with you for a while, several years ago, and you were a youth worker, and I thought that you did a great job with the work that you were doing with the youth that weren't being incarcerated. Tomorrow is a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. What's your feelings on this? I mean, uh, it's supposed to be a day of recognizing uh, Indigenous people and what Indigenous people have gone through, I guess, to Canada, the rest of Canadians. We're trying to educate the Canadian public about the histories of Indigenous people in Canada and to try and create a better understanding. How do you feel about this whole reconciliation? Oh, gee, <laughs> there's a lot I could say about that, but 
you know, it's good that the truth is coming out. Our truth and reconciliation has been hidden for far too long. The genocide, the intergenerational trauma, um, it's been hidden so long. Our people really need to heal now, you know. Coming back to Winnipeg, like I see a lot of healing that needs to be done. And like I see a lot of sleeping elders on the street. And I'm glad that, you know, it's finally come it's finally come out. You know, it's not hidden anymore. Like it's in your face now. Like, how are we gonna deal with it now? I you know I know that there needs to be a lot more healing programs, help with a homelessness, addiction, and to stop that intergenerational trauma. Let's start with the kids. You know, I always believe the youth are our leaders. You know, start with that. I'm wearing my orange shirt right now. Um, I might check out some festivities here in Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Michelle, we're uh, we're getting down to the end of our podcast here. The last question I always ask our guests is tell a funny story or a joke. Just to, you know, kind of lighten the load up. Some of the subjects we talk about are quite serious. And uh, as Indigenous people, in particular, uh, Indian people, like quote, unquote, are always telling funny stories. I guess it's part of uh, our resiliency and our, our coping mechanism uh, to deal with, uh, you know, some of the traumas that we, we've gone through over the years. So... Um, I wonder if you have a joke for us or something, a funny story to tell. <laughs> I got so many. <laughs> I don't think it's appropriate, though. <laughs> well, this is a family show. So. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> um, oh, gee. <laughs> I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> That's fine. We've been talking to Michelle Mainville. She's an amazing woman. She's had a really difficult life. She's a courageous survivor, very strong woman, and I admire her for her resiliency and still able to laugh and joke and look at life in a, in a, in a, positive, in a positive light. So on behalf of the Legacy of Hope Foundation, Michelle, I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I know it's, some of the subjects are difficult for you to talk about. Uh, miigwech. Thank you very much. Miigwech. Miigwech. Yeah, Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.